the goal of this podcast is to transcend such realities. Transcend such realities. I'm now imagining that little uh, the galaxy brain thing. That's what we're doing here. But <laughs> That raises a good point, though, Stephen, that we need to think of how we can memify the Orientalist experience. Oh, I like it. I've often wondered, uh, how could we emulate the Joe Rogan popularity for this uh, podcast i mean we need to do dmt <laughs> that's, right? what I was that's about like to say. a thing they keep talking about so we need to just so that's it right Stephen? we just you and i yeah. just do dmt and talk we are going to do pot policy. policy and uh prostitution i guess i don't know add another p there that something D- that is <laughs> wild and explosive and makes people go oh they're edgy we're gonna do those This is the Orientalist Express Podcast, episode 28. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. We are joined today in the virtual studio by Stephen Howard. Hello! (laughs) Be sure to check out our official website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So here we are, Stephen. I don't really have an intro for this one, but um, I do want us to recall all the way back to our very first podcast, which happened just after the uh, successful election of one um, President Donald Trump. Our very first episode was actually just after that. So it's only fitting that now we discuss, of course, the, uh, the election of Joe Biden as president, if you are to believe, of course, the media. Well, if you're to believe the media, all the reputable sources, all the, you know, state delegations, the you know, facts, the data, basically the everyone evidence. besides Trump. Yes, that's that's what it is. Even even most of the Republicans, when I say most of the Republicans, they're really hedging their bets. But most of the Republicans out there, the uh, how many legal cases are we up to now that have been laughed out of court? It's over. 30, all of them. All of them. All there were two. That I think went forward, but they were like, hey, my people in Pennsylvania need to be five feet away, not ten feet away when you're counting the votes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think even those were thrown out. Um, but no, it's I I, I think that, uh, it, it, one, it's amazing that we're finally getting a different president and uh, our foreign policy might have a sort of coherence to it. I don't think our foreign policy's ever really had a coherence while I have been alive, but we might have a little bit of a coherence. And two, that our podcast is freaking four years old, man. That is insane to me. It's uh, It's been a wild couple of years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It has <laughs> been a good long time. We were just, for everyone listening, we were just talking about all the different things that just changed for our lives in the past maybe two months. Over the past four years, it's it's just huge how much our lives have changed, and I don't know. It's thinking about that and where we started and where we're at is pretty cool. Well, yeah, I just had a second child. You got married. You almost died, apparently. That <laughs> was bold. It was bold. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know, Stephen, if you had a chance to read uh, my I latest did. article. I very much did. So. The big question, and we're basically just going to devote the entire podcast to this uh, discussion of what Joe Biden's foreign policy might look like, what it might mean for the average American, and how wrong you think I am about everything. So uh, let's hear it, Stephen. What would you think? Well, first, let's drop your name drop it. It is uh, on the Orientalist Express, what a a Biden foreign policy could mean for you. And I do have, I will say right off the bat, I have a tendency to be a little bit uh, critical on things that I am looking through, but I I found that your, I I think that I agreed with your article in most of the areas that it talked about. The big question for me was a couple things that you didn't talk about, and we'll get to that a little later maybe. I wanted to go through a couple of the things where you were talking, and one of the first ones was, and I don't think you even meant to really comment on this per se, but I damn well want to comment on it. And it is, uh, in your first paragraph, you talk about how Congress has not 
doesn't have a lot of power in foreign policy. It delegates most of that to the presidency, which includes security cooperation, economic cooperation, etc., etc., etc. And I believe that is something that is hugely, hugely detrimental to U.S. policy and something that I wish that a Biden administration would change. But I guess, especially if they don't take the Senate, I don't see it happening. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I I agree with you in that regard. I don't mean for it to say that, mm. you know. No, 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 I, I think... wasn't implying that. That was just something I wanted to get on a soapbox real quick and yell about. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, though. It There are a lot of reforms that I think are very critical to the Office of the Presidency in general because Congress has just given so much of that authority over to the president. Um, but you're right, unfortunately, unless, you know, if the Democrats take the Senate in January, then maybe some of those measures could potentially go through. They might not, too. We're not quite sure yet. But um, there's basically no chance of anything like that going through unless they do. And there's because there's a lot of things that Congress could do, actual laws that they could pass and constraints that they could put on the presidency to take some of that power back. But um, unfortunately, it doesn't look likely. No, not at all. And I think that especially with the hyperpartisan atmosphere and the... uh, Oh my gosh, the imperial presidency that we have, it's, I I don't see that any of that changing, but that does kind of flow into my next point. And that's uh, in the next paragraph, you talk about a return to a more normal foreign policy or a more normal process for conducting foreign policy. And I am really, I am skeptical that that is what's going to happen. I believe that maybe the decision-making process might be a little bit more normal, but the process, the the foreign policy itself that we're going to conduct, I think is going to be a combination of uh, almost three different lines of going forward. And it's going to be, I think Biden is very much a traditional liberal in terms of uh, an active liberal atmosphere, uh, active liberal I guess, attitude to the world. He wants to intervene in things. He wants to get involved in stuff. And something like uh, what you'd see with Bill Clinton. And even uh, with George Bush. And I'm not sure that's 100% great. We'll get to that a little later. But then also, uh, he has a little bit of the Obama realism going on, uh, which was confused realism, I think. And then the last part that I really think is going to hurt his foreign policy uh, ability to conduct it is Trump is specifically starting fires to not allow for the conducting of normal foreign policy during the first how many years of the uh, Biden administration. I mean, I believe it was a uh, New York Times article that specifically called out, uh, they talked to someone in the administration, obviously a whole bunch of anonymous sources, but that is what the goal of uh, the Trump administration is right now, to start so many fires that it is impossible for Biden to put them out. And I think that means that returning to a normal process for foreign policy is going to be impossible. I think we are looking at something that is not going to be the same as the Trump administration, but not going to be the same as anything we've seen before. If anything, it might be a little bit more imperial of a presidency as he tries to take control of everything happening because Congress won't, and you can't just let something burn. Yeah, I definitely remember reading that as well. Um, that basically it's it's essentially sabotage in the regard of, yeah, like you said, lighting as many fires as you can in the hopes that they can never put them all out. Um, that is kind of what I meant, though, by you know a a return to a no- more normal decision making process at the very least. That it wouldn't just be you know fly by the seat of your pants, you know whatever I feel like doing today, which is what it at least seems like the Trump administration has been doing for the past four years, that at least it would go through, you know, the usual channels of, like, say, you know, intelligence gets collected and then examined and then funneled up through the systems to the president's daily brief and then, you know, blah, blah, all that usual stuff. Um, But I think you're you're right in the regard that we are probably likely to see even more of a quote-unquote imperial president, especially if, again, if uh, the Senate doesn't go in the favor of the Democrats because yeah, you're you're right. There's just so many constraints that Congress is going to put on. And the fact that they're going to, the Republicans would continue to block 
pretty much anything that could be done legislatively. So mm-hmm. you're probably going to see, and what I meant by a return to a new normal is, you know, a return to some of the things that the Obama administration completed. So, you know, a return to the Paris Climate Accords, a return to maybe the JCPOA or some type of Iran nuclear deal. I Actually, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, given that you, um, you know, know so much about Iran. What um, what do you think would be the future of something like um, Biden-Iranian relations? I think that's going to be incredibly, incredibly complicated. Uh, I don't believe it's as simple as we will uh, return to the JCPOA uh, joint uh, plan of action. And that's the plan that we came uh, that the Obama administration came up with on uh, working with Iran. A lot of it times it's called the Iran deal. Um, but the JCPOA right now is being violated by Iran and obviously the United States. And Iran is violating it because the United States is not honoring any of the, its commitments in it. And it's actually pulled out of the JCPOA. What that means... Yeah, that's... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, that's, that's a very important point that we explicitly, the United States explicitly said, we are now leaving this deal and then Iran began to essentially leave the deal and begin enriching uranium. And then, of course, we turned around and said, stop enriching uranium. What are you doing? This isn't part of the deal. But we had, of course, already left said deal. Sure. And it puts us in kind of a bind in terms of returning to it because it was a very unpopular push to get it through Congress when Obama was in uh, office. Now you're going to have to try to return to it with a Iran that doesn't trust you and a they are in non-compliance with the uh, accords right now. And how are you going to be able to justify to the people in Congress and say, no, 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 they'll actually go back. We'll we'll make them go back. How are you going to make them go back? It's not going to happen. And I, yeah, I think that's I think that's been the biggest problem is we the United States no longer has that type of um, that trust, you know, since we so clearly violated it immediately, you know, we had this deal and then we completely trashed it. And now we can't certainly go back to the table with Iran and it's going to be hard enough even to convince our own people in, in the Senate and house. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's going to be very, if we join, if we rejoin the JCPOA, which might be able to be done just by straight up saying, Hey, we rejoin the JCPOA. Uh, we can, join and enter however we want we already passed the stuff through congress it doesn't mean that iran is going to redo what it was doing it already doesn't trust the system and uh, it was uh, iran joined the jcpoa every country joined the jcpoa to get their own benefits out of there no one joined out of altruism they wanted their own stuff out of them and if jcpoa if iran doesn't see the jcpoa as giving any benefits anymore because of the mercurial foreign policy of the United States, then there's really no reason for them to join it. And one of the big things that you saw in Iran after the leaving of the JCPOA of the United States was a huge pushback on Rouhani, the president of Iran, and uh, because he banked his entire form, uh, his entire basically uh, political career on the fact that the JCPOA might be able to list sanctions. And if they listed, lifted sanctions, they might be able to get economic stimulus to the regular people. And this is all, all politics is local. And so right now there is hyperinflation. There is huge economic problems in Iran. And I'm sure they'd want to try to do something to get rid of those. But if it's if it looks like Rouhani is coming back to the table in a position of weakness, there's no way he'll ever do it. It'll destroy him and his political people forever. Uh I I don't see the JCPOA as uh, as viable going forward, I guess. And I, 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 I think it is both a problem of the United States and of Iran for that reason. I don't blame either one 100%. I definitely blame the United States more than I blame, and the Trump administration more than I blame Iran. But Iran's not, they're not completely uh, void of blame. Yeah, and I... I agree with you there. I'm not sure what, you know, even under the best circumstances, what a Biden administration could do about that. Um, it's it's clear that they would, in an ideal world, would like to return to the JCPOA, to that Iran nuclear deal. But um, I guess in reality, what's probably going to end up happening is that they will um, 
maybe try to ease some of the toughest sanctions and uh, continue, you know, military threats and things like that. But that eventually we just kind of reach this weird stalemate where Iran has, and they already have enough uh, material to make a nuclear weapon, but they're just, you know, that few months away from breakout capacity. And we just monitor that and make sure that they don't start assembling a bomb. And then if they do, then that's when military options would be considered. That's that would be my guess as to what would probably occur. Sure, and I, I think that uh, another uh, step that is going to be very important on uh, what happens in the Middle East is if the United States continues or tries to ease tensions with Iran, how does that affect relations with Israel and Saudi Arabia? If you'll remember in the Obama administration, when Obama was trying to ease relations with Iran, it was kind of a uh, a zero sum game. If you eased relations with Iran, that was bad for Saudi Arabia and Israel, and they became more belligerent and more aggressive and tried to use more military power, and that's where you got the suppression of people in Bahrain, you had the uh, invasion of Yemen, you had uh, attacks against the uh, Lebanese, uh, more attacks against the Lebanese, you had uh, Israel launching fighters directly into Syria. They don't trust the United States to be on their side, per se, anymore, because they see it as Iran or them. There is no middle way. And that's something I'm I'm really looking to... I, I don't know exactly how a Biden administration will try to chart a path there. Uh, it's going to be really thorny, because you can make both states more aggressive, or you can uh, try to basically continue to contain Iran via a whole bunch of sanctions and hurting a whole bunch of people, it's, I don't think there's a great answer there. Well, and I think what we're going to find is, and this kind of segues into the next section, that the Middle East itself is very likely to be less important in the overall foreign policy. Because, of course, you know, Obama's foreign policy was very much dominated about what was happening in the Middle East. We were engaged in two wars there. Everything was starting to fall apart. So I think now we're going to see finally a shift towards, um, you know, this great power conflict as we've been talking about for a few years now. The fact that really the Middle East is starting to wane in its importance. And what's really important is that Asia Pacific region. It's, it's our relationship with China and watching what China and to a lesser extent Russia are doing to retain their to regain you know spheres of influence if you will and i actually that is something that i wanted to bring up with you is something that i i i may not completely disagree with you on but something that i i think there's a little bit more to it and one of the big things is superpowers really it's hard for them to pivot especially if this superpower the united states is trying to reestablish allies and uh put back its name in the global arena you can't just abandon an entire area and for better or worse I mean, we all talk about isis like it's dead we talk about al-qaeda like it's dead we talk about the taliban like they're reformed and maybe dead none of them are they're al-qaeda is still out there and is still uh, it is very hard to kill uh isis is still out there killing people wantonly the taliban i believe are <laughs> I'm not sure our reformed would be a good way to put who they where they are right now. And that is all always going to bring us back to the United States, regardless of whether we're in superpower con competitions or not. It's not going to mean that we pivot our resources to the to East Asia. It means we're going to have two completely separate areas where we have to focus, probably more. We're going to also have to focus on Russia. So three completely separate areas where you have to focus. And I'm not really sure that you can get out of the Middle East per se. It's a it's a bear trap. You can't get out of it. Well, we certainly wouldn't wouldn't um, ignore it entirely, but, I mean, let's, let's look at the facts on the ground. I mean, we have basically almost nothing left in Iraq except for, you know, an extremely, extremely secure compound. We're likely to have only a couple thousand troops left in Afghanistan, if even that, since the president clearly wants to remove nearly all of them out um, before Biden gets into office. And I, I just look at, like, think of how many times conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan came up at all during this last year. 
on the on the campaign trail. <laughs> like, I, I cannot remember a single mention of the words Iraq or Afghanistan in any of the debates or in anyone's speeches, um, except for when you know the president was trying to negotiate a peace with the Taliban. So short of that, um, I just don't feel that the Middle East is going to have as much relevance. I mean, you're right; we definitely can't leave it entirely, nor should we. But um, the the main focus, I'm I'm pretty convinced of, is going to be on how to counter uh, the rise of China. Because it really seems like pretty much everyone in the Biden administration that he's um, started to name so far and all of his major you know, supporters and uh, aides and staffers and things like that, like that's what everyone's talking about. It's it's all about China. So my, my uh, counter to that would be that even when Trump tried to withdraw from Syria, all his troops in Syria, uh, I can't remember where the article was from. Um, but if you look it up, uh, there was a recent article out about how one of the main advisors to Trump in Syria basically lied to Trump about the size of military forces in Syria from the United States yeah. and kept large numbers of U.S. military forces in Syria. And that is kind of be the institutional pushback that regardless of what Trump tries to do is still going to be there. There is an institutional and uh, Stephen Walt calls it the blob. Uh, James Mersheimer or James um I'll just Mersheimer calls John. it the, John. Thank you. Mersheimer calls it the blob. And that is something that is going to be very hard to escape. And I don't believe it would be really possible to escape that. There's too much on the line for a lot of uh, U.S. policy decision makers. And I, I agree with you that this wasn't in the debates, but that's because foreign policy doesn't win votes. No one. It, the best you can do about foreign policy is red bait and say, this country is evil, I will fight it, ha ha ha. And people react to that. If you say, this situation in Afghanistan is complex, and I don't believe that we can withdraw all troops in a given time period, people are going to go, oh, look at this wishy-washy political answer. It's a real answer, and it's true, but people don't care about it. And that's why I don't think it was brought up, because there is no good, I guess, answer for... Uh, the Middle East, I think more what it did was it gave the candidates and specifically Biden a free hand to do what they want in the Middle East. He didn't promise anything about the Middle East. He barely talked about the Middle East, but now he can do whatever he feels is right. And what he feels is right is probably going to be what the State Department feels is right. And the State Department still has career staffed officials. Those officials are from the 9-11 years. I don't think that they are going to see the Middle East as any less important as it was then. Well, do they have that many career officials? I mean, they still have some career officials left, but there has been a pretty substantial brain drain from the State Department and from a lot of these intelligence agencies. Well, who are I the mean, people that's, that That's stayed? one of the things I hint at, too. But the people that Well, yeah, the, the ones who... St yeah, the people that stayed were the ones guess... that really believed in the realism and the militarism of the United States. I mean... I, I do believe that there are a lot of, uh, don't get me wrong, I believe there are a lot of people in state that stayed specifically out of duty to their country, even though they didn't believe in the United States foreign policy at the time, but they knew it would change eventually. I think that there are a lot of people in there that also stayed because they they believed in what the United States was doing in the Middle East. So no matter what, you feel as though we are stuck in the Middle East and we're never truly going to be able to... Uh to counter what's happening in, in Asia with China. So I think uh, I think there are two different problems. I don't think we will withdraw from the Middle East. I think we will still be in the Middle East, but I think we will also be working in China. And I don't think that that is necessarily a uh, one or the other. You have to choose one sort of situation. You can choose both. It's just going to be a huge strain on the United States. And I think that is where we're going to lead. I suppose that's fair. But yeah, so that's, I guess that was my kind of issue with the uh, Middle East one is I, I do believe that although we want to transition to great power conflict, and I do believe personally great power conflict is the major issue of the day, there's no way we're ever going to escape uh, what we have been in. There's just too much institutional pull. Your next article or next section is on sanctioning Russia or containing China. And I kind of wanted to ask... I, I agree with you. I think that's what we will be doing. But I kind of wanted to ask you what you thought the uh, 
effectiveness of that policy is going to be because I'm not sure I see that as a effective policy, especially the sanctioning Russia. I don't think Russia doesn't care about sanctions. You could sanction literally all of Russia, and I don't think they would care one iota. And well, it goes beyond just sanctioning, and you're right that the effectiveness of it is limited, especially because, you know, as we've seen with like North Korea, with Iran, if you really, really sanction the heck out of someone, what do they do? They just figure out how to go it on their own without, you know, all these connections from the rest of the world. So they figure out how to, how to overcome the sanctions and to essentially become self-reliant. But I think it's going to be more than a lot more than just sanctions. It's going to be a smarter use of power besides just you know, like in the case of China, a smarter use of of our varied, of our of our different you know tool set that we have, rather than just oh I'm just going to sanction and I'm going to get in a trade war. Like we have a wide variety of tools that we can use, and I feel like that will be better utilized. Not just you know our the the hammer of military power in um, and trade sanctions. And I I agree. I think that it will be more effective when it comes to uh china i don't think i think putting it as containment is a bit of a uh, i don't want to say misnomer because but it we shouldn't be trying to contain china you can't contain china that is a concept from a different age and a complete basically a military one but yeah i do believe we will try to push back on china we'll try to cooperate with it where we can push back on it where it needs to be but i I think there is going to be a huge military component in that, especially when you're talking Taiwan. You have to conduct freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. You have to buffer against North Korea and South Korea. You have to assure Japan. You have to assure uh, Vietnam. But I think one of the greatest things about the Trump era of foreign policy was that it just revealed how stupid Chinese foreign policy is when left on its own because most of these countries Vietnam South Korea Japan uh the Philippines they hated or they didn't hate but they were they were kind of grating against the United States foreign policy before uh because we were had an active foreign policy but you took away that active foreign policy China tried to fill the gap and Chinese foreign policy is aggressive is belligerent and is purely in the interest of the Chinese state. And I think they realized that's even worse. So it might be a gift in disguise. Uh, I do believe China will be a not an easier threat per se. I think it'll be a very hard threat to crack, uh, but it will be something where getting allies on our side might be a little easier. I don't see the same thing in Russia, though. I see the Russia as... Uh, Something where the only type of force or a type of, uh, yeah, type of force that you can bring to bear, it's not economic force, not political force, it is military force against Russia. And that's the only thing they are going to respect. Um, that's the only thing that is going to make our allies a little happier um, in the area, in the region, especially in the uh, Baltic uh, region. I, I don't see, yeah, I don't see sanctions as being effective at all in that regard trying to think how to respond because I, I didn't really mean to imply that like it would be sanctions more of like a continuation of of what already exists and then oh, okay. pushing back even more so not just well okay initially yes sanctions like retaliatory against you know all of the things that russia has gotten away with the past four years that have been completely silent on in u.s foreign policy you know such as obviously the election meddlings the um the targeted assassinations what's happening in ukraine and belarus so i think there will definitely be pushback against that and it will probably take the form of sanctions but there's also so much more that we can do and i think we've seen the effectiveness of of informational warfare of cyber warfare and you know i, I want to take a quick aside to say like look all that we've put in place over the past four years even as disjointed as it's been was clearly enough to deter russia from attempting to meddle in the election again right like at least yes they still engaged in like information warfare and that sort of thing but there was no you know there's no sabotage of electoral systems there were no infrastructure 
attacks that occurred during the day of election day. So I do feel like we have found a way to reach some type of, you know, deterrence with that. Well, none that succeeded and... real quick. None that succeeded, at least. That's all we know. True. Well, and, and none that we know of, yeah. but... Um... But I mean, you can sometimes you can tell, you know, when someone is trying sure. to cyber attack you. Sometimes you can tell. There are times where you can't, but um, we haven't really seen anything occur, and I think that's that's definitely speaks to the effectiveness of of using multiple tools to to challenge and to counter some of these threats. But um, I mean, going back to China a little bit, yeah, I think it it has been, I guess, if you want to say it, fortunate in the sense that. Like you said, all these other nations that typically do not have a good relationship with China, they see that the Chinese foreign policy is very much um, self-interested. And it's true to the extent that everyone's foreign policy is self-interested, right? Like, as I said in the article, the goal of foreign policy is to protect your country's people and to protect the homeland. But there's there's different ways to do that. So like with China, it's very much... I will own you and dominate you. And with the United States, tends to, the past four years notwithstanding, tends to emphasize cooperatives and partnerships. And, you know, I get a lot, but you get a little bit too, so we all kind of have a win-win. Yeah, and I, I agree that's with at least, that. Not... that. That's at least the ideal that we try to, us, that we try to strive for. Sure. And I, I guess I didn't, I didn't realize, I thought you were talking specifically only about sanctions in Russia, so... If you're no, no, I we're beyond sanctions. We 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 need way more than just sanctions. That's uh, that's been, and I know that you feel this way. That that's been the tool that we used for everything. Like that's the solution to everything. Is oh, just do a sanction. Oh, just do a sanction. Well, that only gets you so far, and that's not very far in the first place. No, and it's it's becoming a waning power in the United States, anyways. All of those countries are trying to come up with and are coming up with effective countermeasures to sanctions. So. Well, yeah. I mean, look at the look at the preponderance of like cryptocurrency, right? Like, you you sanction someone and you force them to like not use the the International Monetary Fund and all these ways that people get access to money. Well, now they just will divert to cryptocurrency, or in the case of China, they'll just try to create a separate economic system entirely that benefits themselves and not the rest of the world. Well, here's a question for you. Uh, what do you, of those two countries that you mentioned, which one do you think will be the greater threat, the rogue state that is Russia or the rising power that is China? Ah, uh, yes, I've thought about this one a lot. Um, so it's basically Russia is the short-term threat, China is the long-term. Um, but overall, I would say China is much, much more um, extreme in what it can do. Because kind of as you mentioned, like, what can Russia really accomplish? It's great at like some cyber warfare. It's great at informational warfare. Um, it has some military capabilities, but you know, so so do we we can counter that. Um, but they just do not have the sheer multifaceted uh, strength that China has. You know, China has it has the population, it has the economics, it has the landmass, it has the access to. It has the access to sea routes and land routes and basically everything, and it has immense technological capabilities. I mean, they're they're basically on par with us in some instances of like artificial intelligence and things like that. So they they clearly China clearly is the much much bigger threat to being able to not just attack the United States because it's not really so much about like military attacks anymore specifically as it is creating a separate world structure that sidelines the United States. And that's really what China is capable of doing and it seems would like to do. Okay, and so I guess my second question or follow-up to that is which one should the Biden administration then focus on most? It should focus most on on China. Okay. I mean, it it certainly shouldn't take its eye off the ball on Russia, but um, like I say, there's only so much that, that Russia can really accomplish and that we should definitely be taking that seriously, of course, but you know, but Russia can't, Russia can't create a completely separate world system uh, from the United States like China can. They can try. Their their system is Russia's system is basically 
tear everyone else down and, you know, make everyone so cynical and jaded that they just look around and go, well, I guess Russia's the best now because everyone else sucks. Like, that's, that's really what they've been doing is just saying, well, you know, you cheat too, you know, you're rigged too, so you're no better than I am, which is not a very good long-term strategy. And you're not going to win anyone to your side. You're just going to, you know, make everyone cynical and jaded. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of those false dichotomies that you point out of oh well we're they're just as bad as we are so blah 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 are actually landing in a couple of the more leftist areas in the united states and in the world in general and you see a lot of the people come back like yeah yeah you know what stalin was bad but have you seen that the founding fathers owned slaves like bro (laughs) bro maybe they're not the same maybe those are not the same but yeah yeah both both are not great but one is far less one is far more terrible than the other yeah and so i i guess no i completely agree with you and i think the false dichotomies work and i think that the um i actually think that the biden administration should almost put the russia threat as the uh number one that they take care of and then uh basically not not move as quickly on the south china front start putting in place as things, start building a structure for cooperation. Maybe you go back to the 1950s idea of building a East Asia NATO. I mean, do something like that. But Russia is the preeminent threat and a threat that I think if you take most seriously, you might be able to just snap it off and basically take, get rid of it or at least put it down for a while. And China is, because like you said, it is, and I completely agree, it is a longer term threat. I think we need to move slower on it. And I think we need to move more methodically and more precise. And we, one of the biggest things that I don't want to see the United States do in China is uh, exactly what China did. Step on our own feet. Um, We now have the ability to get back into East Asia with a coherent foreign policy. I don't want to see us rush back in there or uh, move back in there so fast that we stop China from continuously pissing off every single one of its neighbors because their foreign policy right now is the greatest asset to United States foreign policy. And I don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. One thing that would have been excellent, um, at least in this limited regard, is you know the, the old Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. right? Because that, um, for, for all of its... You know, for all of its flaws, which, which by the way, did have, if you actually like look into the text of the document, had a lot of protections for, for labor, for trade unions, for things like that. So, um, you know, there's definitely ways that it could have been tweaked, but ultimately what it would have done is it would have set the rules of the road for all of these other nations, excluding China, to say, here, you all are going to do things the, you know, quote unquote, American way in the sense of how we open our societies and you know how we trade amongst each other and how we protect our own assets here at home you know our own people our own manufacturing things like that at home how we do that while also at the same time opening up a little bit to the rest of the world but instead what has now happened is china has basically signed a very similar type of thing as the trans-pacific partnership with all these other nations but we're excluded and the rules are written to china's benefit and ultimately that right there is what should be the number one proof point that shows what happens when the united states just backs off and leaves and isolates itself is that other nations like china step in and they write the rules that everyone else follows they write it to their advantage not to ours and that hurts us in the end it's going to hurt us economically it's going to hurt us you know politically it's going to hurt us in every other way you can think of i completely agree 100 percent agree and i don't want to I, I was actually going to get to this a little later, but I will uh, just, for the sake of coherence, put it in right now. One of the big things that I didn't quite see in your article was how Biden would treat globalism. And specifically, I was thinking about the TPP in this regard, because just this week, China signaled its willingness to re-enter or to enter the TPP, which is ironic in that it was built to, you know, <laughs> push out China a little bit from a lot of these economic systems. But... I don't believe that Biden, I, if I remember correctly, sorry, Biden was against the TPP. I think that 
he and a lot of these other Democrats are very strongly against this type of globalization. And he has, to my knowledge, not made any statements on if he's going to go back into the TPP, if he's going to try to enter the TPP, if he's going to try to do something to, I don't know, go in parallel to the TPP. But I don't believe that he is very strong on globalism in the economic sense of the word. And I'm not sure how that is going to play out. And with, I guess, in the, in the especially East Asia, where globalism is so important to United States uh, influence in the area. And I get that there is a lot of pushback in the United States. Uh, there is manufacturing jobs. There are farming jobs. There are all those blue-collar jobs that you want to take care of. But at the same time, like Nick said, there were tons of protections in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And people just ignore them because trade deals bad, protectionism good. You know, I ape, whatever. And I don't believe that Biden will change that all that much. I don't believe that we will be pushing back as strongly on the trans um, on the economic, uh, I guess, escalations of China, at least through a globalized method. And to, I guess, go forward on that a little bit more. If you don't have an economic response to China through globalism in the East Asian sphere, but you want to keep East Asian influence, that means you're going back to military bases. That means you're going back to more carrier fleets that are carrier groups. Sorry. That means you're you're going to be spending a lot more money in East Asia, and like we've already talked about, um, I believe we're going to stay in the Middle East. We both agree that we are going to be taking more active measures against Russia. Uh, we will probably be taking more active uh, involvement with a lot of other allies across the world and put, you know, staffing them again with troops. How I, I and this is going to be a lot of money, and we're trying to reinvest in the United States at the same time. I'm, I am uh, wary that the Biden administration will be able to get all of this done. I believe that it is its intent, but if it and I believe it will. If it does not perform uh, economically in East Asia, I don't see us being able to effectively counter China um, without, well, at all, honestly, because the military thing isn't a long-term, the military option is not a long-term option. It's too expensive. Yeah, and it's not even all that effective, as you said. What's really more effective is the economic measure of it, because that is what, that's the, the alternative that China is really offering to these other countries, is an economic alternative to tie their economies to the Chinese economy to the point where, you know, they they basically have to do what China says unless, you know, lest they incur the wrath of China. I mean, look at like, look at what... Um, so many American companies are even doing where they want to get into the Chinese market and suddenly all of a sudden you don't hear anything about Hong Kong hmm. from these companies and any employees who on company Uyghurs? time say what something Uyghurs? about Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. And the Uyghurs too and all of these other issues that are very sensitive to China. Suddenly these American companies, American companies here in the United States are censoring themselves because they don't want to incur that wrath of China. So that's why, as you said, the key really is, and I, I am confident that the Biden administration has some idea of this, but I sure hope to see that in, uh, in practice, is that we have to create those alternatives and offer those alternatives. And that, that is done by reinvigorating our economy here at home to, to build some of these things and to create those connections with these other economies. So that way we, we can actually trade with them and be a partner with them. And then, you know, we uplift ourselves and then we also, you know, decide byproduct also uplift these other countries because you know we want them to be successful too as much as we want ourselves to be successful so do you think the united states is going to actually go forward with globalism or how do you think we're going to treat globalism under the biden administration well, well i think globalism is inevitable and you have to treat it as such i mean we if if we as we've seen in the past four years we can isolate ourselves and close ourselves off but the rest of the world is going to continue to 
become even more interconnected and even more, you know, globalized, if you want to use that phrase. So it doesn't make any sense for us to just scream against it and to try to say, well, we're just not going to play ball with it. What we have to do is we have to take that and make that work to our advantage. So we have to take this globalist, you know, all these connections that globalism is offering, and we have to provide a better alternative to to what China and to what these other large powers are offering. You know, we have to work within these trends that we're seeing throughout the world, and we have to provide that better alternative. And that segues nicely into the climate change discussion. Sorry, I just want to quickly get a plug for that, where, you know, if we invest in a lot of these technologies, these emerging technologies, especially in, in the areas of like green energy and, you know, AI and things like that, if we invest in that and we start building that infrastructure here at home, we can sell that to the rest of the world, corner that market, and thus globalism is working for us rather than against us. And I, I completely agree with you. My my big thing is I just I'm not sure how uh, how pro globalism the Biden administration will be. I believe that the Biden administration isn't going to be pro globalism. I think it will be a little bit more protectionist. Uh, just because Biden's uh, feelings on the issue. Um, and so I agree with everything you said. I will say that right now. But I'm not sure Biden agrees with that. And I think Biden is going to, uh, on globalism specifically, I believe he will be more protectionist than we need him to be. And I believe he will be a lot more uh, obstructive than we need him to be on those issues. I will say on the climate change issue, I completely agreed with you, and I believe that you are correct that he is going to rejoin the uh, Paris Climate Change uh, Agreement, and he is going to try as hard as he can to uh, actually combat climate change, if nothing else, because the New Green Deal is something that he wants to stave off because, and I know there are going to be people out there that disagree with me on this, because it isn't really well thought through, and that means that to stop it from, I guess, uh, percolating through the Democratic ranks and becoming the new thing that you really have to get to, he has to offer a different plan. And I think that is something that he is willing to do. He is willing to offer a middle way that isn't as absolutely demagogic as the New Green Deal and allows us to move forward in a more substantial way. But no, and that, that actually brings up a point I also wanted to mention, which is to what extent the Biden administration will have to, you know, almost outflank the more leftist tendencies of the party, or or at least it would feel that it will have to in order to, to maintain what is clearly what Biden wants, which is kind of a, a more moderate middle of the road, you know, type of type of policy. Although it is worth pointing out that a lot of a lot of parts within his policy are uh, a lot more left than any other Democrat that we've seen in a long time. But I think you're right that, you know, Biden does not want to be beholden to the Green New Deal, though I'm not really sure to what extent he should care that he gets pinned with the Green New Deal, because quite frankly, we've seen that the right will attack him on that no yeah. matter what. I mean, they've been calling him a socialist, and he is the right. first thing you can find from a socialist that is still has a Democrat in their name. So it doesn't really matter what the truth is in that regard, but um, I think you are right that 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 would be a good counter to saying, you know, okay, I'm not going to go quite as far as the Green New Deal, but here I'm doing all of these other things instead. Yeah, and I I, I agree with you 100% on the uh, – <laughs> if you talk to a leftist, uh, Biden is a closet Republican. If you talk to a Republican, he's a socialist, <laughs> and honestly, there's no good place to be, which probably means he's – right in the middle of the road and probably correct so i i'm very much on board with that um i think they're going to have a very strong pull on uh some administration i guess uh ideas specifically when it comes to traditional allies which might not be democratic allies well so so you think that they will put even more of an emphasis on making sure that our strongest U.S. allies are not necessarily, you know, dictatorial states, but are very much, you know, small d democratic states, states that actually care about democracy and the rule of law, that sort I, of thing. So you think I that wish. the leftist side of the party will be more 
uh, will try to push Biden more towards that. I don't think they will. And that's kind of the problem. I think they're just going to push it to not uh, be involved with countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. Um, I, I don't know what they're going to think about Egypt. Um, but countries that don't have a democratic record to them, I don't think they're going to push for engagement with democratic countries because what I've seen a lot of them do is push against things. They don't push for, they push against. Well, that kind of leads to one last thought I had, which is to what extent do you think that the Biden administration will, based on what we've seen you know, in the eight years that Biden was vice president, to what extent do you think that they're really going to care how you know democratic or how authoritarian a country is or is it going to be more we we will take the allies we can get and we will do what we can and if their democracy is great and we're gonna on the face of it we're gonna say that that's a good thing we want them all to be democracies but ultimately we're not going to push that hard do you think it's going to be more like that or do you think it really is going to be you know we cut our ties with saudi arabia because they are not a democracy in any sense and they in fact jail and execute people who disagree with the king i or the crown the crown <laughs> prince in this case we yeah say. uh mbs the there's words you can call him but anyways uh the i do believe that the um the emphasis for the biden administration is going to be focusing more on gaining allies and gaining u.s prestige back regardless of where that is and they will take allies where they can get them, whether it be Erdogan, whether it be MBS, whether it be uh, Duarte. They're going to want to take those allies, I believe. And that's why I think that uh, the more leftist caucus is going to be a little bit disruptive because they don't want to take all those allies. But that is a traditional kind of U.S. policy in the more liberal tendency of the United States in the Clinton and the um, Bush administration years of finding allies wherever they are and not caring about their internal institutions. And instead of the realist uh, ideas, which were more Obama and Trump, which were don't ally with as many countries. Um, and if you are going to ally with them, make sure they are <laughs> ideologically synchronous with you. And that's why you had Trump had so many problems with democracies and you had Obama had so many problems with dictatorships. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. The the problems that they each had with, with that respective uh, type of ideology. Um, I guess I'm, I guess I'm of the opinion that, yeah, I agree. It's, it's likely that we're going to return to that sort of, you know, th that sort of realism, if you want to call it that of we'll take the allies where, we, where we can and who we can, um, I'm not necessarily sure that that's the worst thing in the world because, again, we've seen to what extent attempting to just force American democracy on other countries really doesn't always work the way you would want it to. And um, we've, we've just seen the effects of that in, in places like the Middle East where we try to impose that, where we try to push and push and push and get them to to be more democratic and to support the rule of law. And a lot of times it, it just ends up making things worse for for us and making things worse for, for the people on the ground there. Uh, to an extent, I will say that I don't believe that is realism. Real quick, L realism would dictate no allies. And that's why I think of it more as a liberal idea to uh, get as many allies as anywhere as possible. Uh, sure, but sure. I, I very much agree with you that I think that is a positive way forward and the way forward that the Biden administration will try to take. Um, I do wonder if it is going to put us in a little bit of conflict and a little bit of binds with uh, countries like Israel, like Egypt, and places where you don't really want to be... You want to be allied with them because the people there are great. The government's not so much. But we're going to have to be allied with a couple governments out there that aren't great. And that's going to be Erdogan. That's going to be Al uh, Sisi. That's going to be uh, Netanyahu. And obviously my experience is in the Middle East, and that's why I'm only coming up with Middle East names here. But it's going to be very interesting to see if any of those have negative repercussions and blowback, because one of the things that you saw with uh, any of the uh, presidents who really follow uh, before Trump was if something happened in one of these countries that uh, we had a 
kind of a dictator in place, we didn't know how to react. And so when uh, in 2012, the uh, riots in Egypt happened and they overthrew uh, the quote unquote president dictator of Egypt, we had the United States didn't know how to react under Obama. And that's because the dictator of Egypt at the time was a U.S. ally. So do we support him? Do we not support him? I mean, we're for democracy, but we're against not having allies. What do we do? And we were paralyzed. And I think that happened a lot in the Middle East, is that we were paralyzed. We didn't know how to react. And I think that this ups the, uh, ups the ante and maybe will cause, if more revolutions happen, this might uh, cause us to be paralyzed in a couple different cases. Yeah, I think especially in, in Middle East, in cases in Middle East countries, definitely. I would say that's going to be uh, much less of a factor anywhere in Southeast Asia. Because anything that's, you know, it's going to be sort of that calculation of does this help us or does this help China? And ultimately, the decision will likely fall on whichever helps us over China in that regard. Well, there have been protests. But that's just, that's just my thought. Uh Hold on a second. I'm forgetting that. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Thailand. In Thailand, there have been pretty big protests against the uh, king there. And those are unprecedented. Uh, there have been, you know, kind of agitations mildly against the king of Thailand for a while. But this is really the first time that we've seen actual protests against the Thailand's government. And so I, I do believe that there is potential in Vietnam, in uh, the Philippines in obviously Thailand, uh, Hong Kong. I don't know why. Don't get me started on how, how upset I am with us policy on Hong Kong, but I think there are a lot of different spots where protests might break out and that we need to have a ready policy. If those protests break out and especially what happens if there is a contested government in those countries, because dictatorships can have contested governments very easily. And we need to be prepared to uh, what we want to do if there is a contested government. Do we stand back? Do we take the side of one or the other? What do we do? And we need to have an idea of that, especially if they're at our allies. One of the other things that I kind of found to be missing in the article, and I, I don't think that this was uh, so much as, I don't think you were wrong, I just didn't see it in there, was what will the military posture of a new Biden administration be? And that is going to be, I think, very important for the United States going forward, because we are, I know Biden has emphasized a lot that he wants to rely more on diplomatic presence in different countries, but we have seen that said from every president since, I don't know, Reagan or something like that. Every president comes in saying, we're, we're not going to be as, except for maybe Trump, we're not going to be as aggressive in the world. And then suddenly Bill Clinton is sending cruise missiles into Afghanistan. Um, we're invading Iraq. Uh, Obama is, is contributing arms to bomb Libya. I mean, what is going to be the posture of a new Biden administration and how... Uh, I guess, how does he choose to balance defense with U.S. domestic needs? Yeah, I think I think it's going to be similar to the Obama stance in that regard, mostly just because, you know, Biden was part of that for eight years, and I, I doubt he's going to make major changes. Though I do think he will, just by necessity, have to rely on the State Department a lot more, you know, because, as we've mentioned, so many positions are vacant, and there's just there's such a leadership crisis within a lot of these organizations that he will have to staff up and fill those very quickly and then hopefully have to rely on on some of that uh, to to a good extent but no i think you i think you're right it's um, it's going to be very similar to obama's in that regard so that's kind of the one area where i think it, it really is going to be what we've seen before sure i guess one thing to think about for the obama administration was the use of special forces and drones by the Obama administration skyrocketed. So if uh, it is a continuation of the Biden administration, 
I think we will see a lot more dronings, and I think we will see... Well, we won't see, but there will be a lot more uses of special operations in the world. Oh, for sure. And that's, I mean, given the fact that, of course, he doesn't want to start a bunch of new wars, that, yeah, special forces would be... And that's what he's actually already admitted, is that special forces and uh, these types of support advisory types of roles are, are really where the United States is going to be putting most of its efforts, and... I mean, I can't say that that's necessarily a bad thing. Wouldn't you rather have a few smaller operations than, you know, spend all of the military expenditures on some giant, you know, full division of forces going? Well, that was kind of the idea of the Obama administration, too. And I think that failed. I think that they wanted to get rid of the use of uh, large scale military forces uh, because it's economically more efficient to use special forces, but the or not special forces, I'm sorry, special operations. But the thing about special operations is they are special. Um, they are, there is only a few people who are fit to be in them, and there are only so many units of those. So when you use those as your main tool, you are overburdening the use or our special operators in the field. And that can lead to things like special operators. Uh, I'm not sure if you read the article about uh, a couple of um, a couple of Navy SEALs killed a U.S. Army Ranger in, um, gosh, what was the country in Africa? It was in e- uh, West Africa. And they did it because the Navy SEALs were using pretty hard drugs. And that's something that we've seen rampant among the special forces, is that the use of these accelerants basically because they are on such heavy schedules they are go 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 you're deployed to one place you're back in the month for a month and you're deployed to another place and i don't think that is sustainable and like i said special operations are special and they need to be used less if you are going to use military forces in a country you better be prepared to use conventional forces if you want it to have any lasting impact because special operations will have an impact and it will be using a scalpel, but a scalpel is not going to impact major change. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very fair point. I do think that there will be quite an emphasis on diplomacy and on restaffing, you know, agencies like the State Department, but... Um... We'll see. So far, they're saying that that's going to be the big, uh, the big push. But like you said, people have been saying that for a long right. time. Right. I hope it's right. I hope this time's the time. And ultimately, that would just better serve the yes, people. Yes, it would. If, if we're you were using just fewer resources and fewer expenses in all these places abroad to do things that, quite honestly, are, are short term and very limited in scope. But if you create through diplomacy a much stronger partnership with a country then ideally you never have to invade them in the first place well that's yeah i hope that we never get to the point where you have to invade many other countries and at this point anymore and i think that i really hope that oh every president going forward has learned kind of the lesson of wars of necessity and wars of choice and maybe we should do less wars of choice maybe maybe our interests aren't served by wars of choice maybe wars i don't care what the gun-toting whatever say about it aren't a great idea well no clearly clearly they're not they're expensive they're messy they put american soldiers at risk and ultimately you know what does the average american get out of it basically nothing that's funds that could be used here at home for so many things and that's why i i am confident that there will be a much more pronounced push for diplomacy i just hope that it is actually enough to really to begin to tip the scale back a little bit to more support for people at home for domestic purposes and having our foreign policy work work less for you know these these great grand schemes of how can we invade and take over this country versus just how do we create these partnerships that ultimately lead to better better political standing and better economic standing uh with the rest of the world agreed and shout out to realism we need to recognize where our interests are and our interests are at a country in, at home our interests aren't abroad usually yeah that's 
again, like I say, foreign policy, the, the tool of foreign policy is to be used to benefit, you know, the average American. Yes, it's great that we've developed a system that also enriches and benefits the lives of so many other people throughout the world. I think that makes it a good and just and equitable foreign policy, but it does also just benefit people at home, or at least it should. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guest Stephen for his insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.